Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why, Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Today we're exploring the case for non-human rights with guest Jeff Sebo. I have a dog. His name is Oscar. He's my third. After 22 years of being a dog owner, of watching them play, love, investigate the world, and unfortunately die, I can say with confidence that I know what Oscar is trying to tell me. He doesn't say much. He's not interested in discussing philosophy or creating great art, and he's not always clear on what I'm trying to tell him, but he communicates just fine. I know when he's scared or lonely or when he's feeling playful or tired. When he's hungry, he likes to pretend that he hasn't already been fed. We call this lying. And he can even argue and hold a grudge. There are people who will claim I'm anthropomorphizing Oscar's instinctive behavior, but these people don't live with dogs. They don't get it. They're just wrong. I can understand Oscar because Homo sapiens and dogs co-evolved. We didn't domesticate them. They and we learned to work together. This gave dogs food and security and offered us protection and eventually agriculture. Humans could not have progressed as a species without dogs. We owe them a lot. Since we understand each other, it's pretty obvious to me that I have to treat him well. I don't mean that I do this because I understand him. I mean that his communication clarifies the fact of the matter. I have thumbs and he does not. I could buy groceries and he can't. And as a result, I have to feed him and keep him safe. And in return, he warns me when someone is at the door and keeps a watchful eye on my family by sleeping where he can see and hear everything that is going on in the house. We love one another. There are, of course, people who abuse or neglect dogs, but they are, pardon the term, immoral assholes, and their very existence proves my point. The act of seeing Oscar, and I mean seeing in a philosophical sense, places upon me a duty of care. And if I have a duty, it probably means that he has rights. We'll get to that later. Other people in different situations have similar experiences with different animals. Elephants are clearly brilliant. Chimpanzees have senses of humor. Pigs, goats, and birds all interact intentionally with the humans they live with. And while I'm not sure if there are people out there who actually speak insect, it's clear that bees understand one another enough to get the job done. Animals are sentient creatures who experience pleasure and pain, and humans ignoring this fact more often than not increases their suffering. I mention all of this because the guest on today's show begins his most recent book by assuming that, and I quote, sentience is sufficient for well-being and moral status. And I wanted to explain why. There are two parts to this assumption. The second is that animal sentience is enough to give them moral status. This would mean that we as human beings have an obligation to care for them, that they, again, may have rights. Explaining that is my guest job, so I'll put that aside. But the first part, is a much shorter version of what I've been trying to describe so far. The fact that animals have feelings means they can be better or worse off, and by definition, better off is better. John Stuart Mill argued that the best way to prove a moral theory is to show that it's what people actually believe. I think most everyone agrees that animals should be made better off. We love our pets. We furrow our brows at roadkill. Just about everyone hates it when a bird slams into a window we're looking through. The most common justification for deer hunting is that thinning out the herd is a way of preventing mass starvation. We simply don't want animals to suffer. 
the next question should be obvious. What do we do about it? And herein lies the difficulty. It's easy for us to care for the pets we love, but it's hard to develop public policy that protects chickens. It's self-evident that cats and dogs have relationships with their owners, but it takes a sophisticated argument to suggest that gorillas have legal standing. It's convenient to indulge our inclination to pet the cute and furry baby goat. It feels insurmountable to build a society around wild animal care. But that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to ask if animals have rights, what moral obligations humans have to non-humans, and how our politics ought to respond to both. In the end, all of this is built on the observation that animals' well-being matters because they are sentient. And if this isn't enough, what is? If the capacity to be better or worse off isn't a factor in our moral lives, what else could be at the foundation? And if pain and suffering are irrelevant, why should I not just disregard animals? In fact, why shouldn't we ignore each other as well? Are human and non-human so different? I think not. So let's take this as our starting point and see what happens. Do non-humans have rights? Let's find out. And now our guest. Jeff Sebo is Clinical Associate Professor of Environmental Studies, Affiliated Professor of Bioethics, Medical Ethics, Philosophy, and Law at New York University. He's the author most recently of Saving Animals, Saving Ourselves. Jeff, welcome to Why. Thanks so much for having me. To our listeners, if you'd like to participate, please share your favorite moments from the show and tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. TikTok is on the way. Our handle is always at Y Radio Show. Rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform so that others can find the show and listen to all 15 years worth of episodes for free, as well as our sister show, Philosophical Currents, at our website, whyradioshow.org. And as always, this show can only happen with your support. We exist solely on listener contributions, so click donate in the upper right-hand corner of our website to make your tax-deductible donations through the University of North Dakota Alumni Foundation portal. So, Jeff. You start off your book by recalling the 2019-20 Australian bushfires and pointing out that 3 billion animals died in those fires. 3 billion. Did I, did I read that correctly? You did read it correctly. But if anything, that might actually be an understatement because those are the known animals who are harmed and killed in the Australia bushfires. And if we really consider all of the non-human victims, including the much larger population of invertebrates who were likely harmed and killed during the bushfires, then the number is probably much, much higher than that. How many animals are there? Or rather, how does the human population compare to the animal population? The human population, unsurprisingly, is much, much smaller than the total population of animals in the world, because, of course, humans are only one species. And we might have done a really good job taking over the world and making ourselves as numerous as we can realistically, sustainably be. But we are still only one among very, very many species. And so for the roughly 8 billion humans who exist, there are very many more other mammals, other vertebrates, and then very, 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 very many more other invertebrates. And those include captive animals and wild animals. We kill, for example, more than 100 billion captive animals per year for food alone, and we kill trillions of wild animals per year for food and for other purposes. So not only are there many more non-humans than humans at any given time, but we kill many more non-humans than the total human population by orders of magnitude in any given year. 
when when you talk about this in your book, you you publish what I think may be my new favorite number. You say that compare that that the total population in percentage is point zero 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 one percent. Is it is it a problem of the history of philosophy that we don't care about the other ninety nine point nine 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 dot dot dot, or is it just thoughtlessness? Well, I think the answers to these kinds of questions are usually going to be both and, right? It is a major problem for philosophy. It stems partly from thoughtlessness, and it stems partly from a major standpoint epistemology issue, which is philosophy is at this point in time made exclusively uh, by and primarily for humans. And so it might not be that surprising that we have focused on human concerns and focused on human ways of thinking about those concerns. Now, that might soon change once AI systems get involved with producing novel philosophy in the future, then some non-humans are going to be playing a role as well. But yeah, up until this point, uh, a privileged select subset of one privileged select species have been exclusively empowered to decide what kinds of thoughts matter and distribute those thoughts to everybody else. So, so we have a very, very specific kind of tunnel vision right now. I love that you mentioned standpoint philosophy because that is both the cause and the solution in many respects. Can you explain what that means and how it's connected to the argument? In very general terms, and I am not an epistemologist, but I appreciate good epistemology. In very (laughs) general terms, standpoint epistemology is the view or or the, the framework that allows us to recognize that our ways of thinking about things will be partly informed by our own identities and backgrounds and experiences and perspectives. And so, for example, as a cis straight white man, I am going to have a certain set of experiences and see the world in a certain kind of way. And that will inform my beliefs and my values and practices and my philosophy. And while people primarily talk about standpoint epistemology with respect to identities like race and gender, it also applies more generally to identity like species membership, being in the category of homo sapiens. Uh, The fact that we are humans and that we see the world through human modalities, that we think about the world through human conceptual categories, that necessarily shapes and limits the ways that we can think about the types of problems that non-humans might be facing and, and the types of solutions there might be to those problems. And our predicament is that we have no choice but to see the world through human perspectives, and yet we still for better or worse, have power over the entire rest of the world. And we have to make decisions that are going to impact the entire rest of the world. And so we have to do what we can to make decisions from our human perspectives, but also understand their nature and limits and what we can do to correct and limit the force of our various forms of bias and ignorance as humans. This And this goes back all the way, depending on how you interpret it, to Protagoras's comment in, in classical Greece that man is the measure of all things, right? That that as human beings, we see through human beings' eyes. I saw uh, just recently on TikTok, there's a new filter that lets you see the world the way that dogs see the world. And so the, <laughs> there's, it's like largely blue and yellow. And, you know, I don't know if it's accurate. It's TikTok. But it was very, very interesting to see. And 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 it seems like just that acknowledgement that that the way that our body interacts with the world is different that takes an imaginative jump. How much 
are you relying on people's imagination to start thinking about animals as objects or subjects of moral consideration? Is this, is this uh, to steal a line from William James, are we suffering from a lack of imagination? Well, we definitely suffer from that. Uh, fortunately, we do have imaginations. And fortunately, we can also draw from some of our present experience. I loved your intro when you talked about your relationship with your dogs. And this oh, is something you. I think that a lot of people can relate to, right? And I have a dog sleeping in the other room right now, and I feel all the same ways about him. And I know a lot of other of your listeners do too, uh, or with cats or with horses or with other non-human animals. And I think that means that we can, to some extent, draw from our actual lived experience when we think about these issues. We can recognize from our own personal interactions with animals that yes, they do have sentience, they do have agency, they do have these features that when we reflect on these features in our own lives, we recognize them as morally significant. And, and so we can see them as morally significant in these other animals too. And we can naturally experience ourselves as having responsibilities to treat them with respect and compassion. So to that extent, we can find the idea that they have sentience, that they have agency, that they matter for their own sakes, that we can have responsibilities to them, that we can create shared environments that allow us both to flourish at the same time. We can find that in our own experience, but because our current world is really built not only by and for humans, but by and for, again, a select privileged subset of humans, it really requires a lot of imagination to kind of break free of these structures, these social, legal, political, economic, ecological, infrastructural systems that force conflict and violence uh, and trade-offs between humans and other animals. We have to think beyond that, and we have to use our imaginations to do that, to figure out what other radically different ways can there be of structuring our shared environment so that we can get along better and we can flourish uh, more you know, holistically, harmoniously. And I want to pull all of those threads because uh, I think it's really powerful to remind us that this isn't just about seeing through another animal's eyes, but this is seeing past our entire system, our culture, our way of, of, of doing things. But I want to do things a little backwards than I usually do. As you know, philosophers tend to start with the abstract and go to the concrete. But I, I want to start mm -hmm. with the concrete and then work our way to your book in the second half of the of the show, because your book is 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 one coherent argument, and, and, and that takes a kind of detail work that I don't think we're ready for. I found you through an organization called the Non-Human Rights Project. What is the Non-Human Rights Project? Why is it important, and what's its goal? The Non-Human Rights Project, I, I do some work with them as a philosopher, is a group of lawyers that are basically pursuing a litigation strategy that will persuade judges and other people in the law to recognize non-human animals as legal persons with legal rights. And the basic idea is that in many jurisdictions, including in the United States right now, we broadly classify everyone and everything that exists into two basic categories. You can either be a legal person defined as a being with the capacity for legal rights that reflect your basic needs and interests, or you can be a legal object without the capacity for any rights at all. So everyone and everything is either a legal person with rights or a legal object without rights. And at present, again, in most jurisdictions, we classify all and only humans as legal persons and some stand-ins for human interests like corporations. So all and only humans and then corporations are legal persons with legal rights. And that means we have standing, we can be represented in courts and so on and so forth. And then 
everyone and everything else, including all non-human animals, are classified as legal things without the capacity for any rights at all. And that means we can treat them as property, we can treat them as commodities. Yeah, we can protect them in the same kind of way that we protect uh, other things, like as our property or as a matter of public interest, but we cannot protect them for their own sake because they have a right uh, because they have standing, because they merit recognition and consideration in the courts. And so the Non-Human Rights Project recognizes that this is basic speciesism, basic anthropocentrism. There is no consistent, coherent, principled reason why we should draw lines in this kind of way. And so they are bringing cases to courts on behalf of individual non-human animals like chimpanzees or elephants who are held in terrible conditions in solitary confinement. They are going to courts on behalf of these animals and saying, can you please give this animal habeas corpus so we can relocate them to a more suitable living environment? And the, the primary purpose in these cases is to improve the life of this one individual animal who deserves that. But then the broader, more uh, abstract purpose is to persuade some court somewhere to say, yes, this animal is not a mere thing that can be bought and sold like a property or commodity. This animal is a person. They can have rights that reflect their basic needs and interests, and we should treat them accordingly. So that is the, their, their goal, and, and that, those are the kind of twin purposes of their cases. In a, in a TED Talk, the president of the organization, uh, Stephen Wise, ties this in with um, the James Somerset case, which is a famous case in which a, a slave uh, sued in London to be free. And habeas corpus, which is one of the oldest aspects of, of, of common law, is, is the demand to, to recognize that a person has due process. Do you think, and does the, organize, does the organization see this battle as the next logical step in civil rights? Are we now, I don't want to say that everything has been solved already, but, but, but are we now at the next step? Is this a continuum, as he suggests, by talking about uh, James Somerset? Yeah, I think that that is useful historical context to keep in mind. I think when we keep that context in mind, we should always acknowledge that there are a lot of similarities across oppressions, including human and non-human oppressions, but there are also a lot of differences too. And human oppressions, as you suggested, are also ongoing, right? So we should not think that these are identical situations, nor should we think that human oppressions are all solved. And now all we need to do is learn our lessons from those and apply those lessons to non-human oppressions, right? Because the reality is a lot more complicated. The reality is that human oppressions are ongoing. Non-human oppressions are ongoing. These are all tangled up together. Racism, sexism, ageism, ableism, classism, uh, speciesism, and so on and so forth. They are all going to exist indefinitely, in perpetuity. And so we, we need to keep using everything available, socially, legally, politically, economically, etc. everything available to resist all of them at the same time. But at the same time, we can recognize parallels across them, we can recognize interactions across them, and then we can figure out liberation strategies that can be holistic, that can resist all these forms of oppression in a harmonious way so that we avoid accidentally furthering one cause by setting another one back, right? And in the spirit of that, I think it is useful to consider in, in past situations when we did wrongly classify someone not as a person, but rather as property, in those situations, what was an effective way to rectify that problem? And when we look back at that history in a variety of contexts, we can see that habeas corpus has tended to be one of the first things that successfully persuades a judge to 
get our foot in the door and say, no, this is unjust. We should extend legal consideration, legal standing to this new cl- class of beings who were wrongly uh, treated as, as property previously. And, and then the only other thing I can, I can say here, uh, again, as you suggest, is that I think it would be too simplistic and reductive to think of social progress, social justice as a linear process that happens step by step, where you first liberate one class of oppressed beings, and then you liberate the next class of oppressed beings, and then you liberate the next class of oppressed beings. And one reason for that is that these liberation projects are never complete, right? We always have to keep resisting racism. We always have to keep resisting sexism. And then another reason is that we can do multiple things at once. We can resist multiple oppressions at the same time. And in fact, our efforts to do that are made more effective by a holistic uh, approach that considers all of these things at the same time. We can be better anti-racist when we bring anti-sexism into that work and vice versa. And in the same kind of way, we can be better at resisting human oppressions when we bring resistance against non-human oppression into that work and vice versa. So I prefer not to think about it as uh, the next step is is non-human liberation. I prefer to think of it as we now recognize that this work is even more complicated than we previously thought, and we need to expand our moral circle and our legal and our political circle accordingly. I mean, I think we see your very point when we talk about things like ecotourism, where protecting the rainforest or, or, or providing for the animals in an area also brings money and economic growth, which then liberates um, people who live in the area who might not have other opportunities, that, that we're starting to look at stuff as complementary rather than sequentially but and 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 i think mm-hmm. that that's and we're going to we're going to talk about the holistic approach in a minute after the break but but i have i have sort of a weird question which is as a philosopher is it hard for you to work with the lawyers on these topics i mean law is so procedural it's strategic truth is secondary to the process but philosophers at least at our best are trying to pursue some fundamental truths about the world how do you and your skill set interact with the lawyers who are strategic and working in a very, very technical environment with a very, very particular set of goals? <laughs> that is a really good question. And, and I should say, too, that the question generalizes because a big part of this kind of work is also doing multidisciplinary academic work, right? In addition to working with advocates and policymakers and other practitioners or change makers, you also have to work with social scientists and natural sciences and other people to get a full understanding of all of the normative and empirical issues at play here. And I personally love that kind of collaborative work. I love multidisciplinary academic research and teaching and and program work. And I love then also working with advocates, policymakers, other practitioners, other change makers, because it really helps me bring my toolkit to bear on the world and and to bring it together with other complementary ways of thinking about things and ways of doing things to get the full picture. Because none of the problems that we face can be solved by thinking in one particular way with one particular methodology that really requires thinking in lots of different ways with lots of different methodologies and then putting them into practice. And that is just enormously gratifying work. And it makes me think philosophy can be practically valuable. But, and and I can say this briefly to directly answer your question, there sometimes are tensions that are useful to think about. And, and one, as you say, is that philosophy can be very abstract and theoretical. And then the law, for example, is very concrete and uh, very particularistic. 
And it, that can be a useful reminder that our foundational philosophical theories, like utilitarianism versus rights theory, for example, that occupies this space that can be very far removed from the frameworks that actually guide law and policy, and rightfully so, right? You know, string theory might be at the foundation of our theories of science, but you should not cross the street by thinking about 11-dimensional strings or 13-dimensional <laughs> strings. You should cross the street by thinking about cars and trucks, right? And in the same kind of way, maybe utilitarianism or maybe right theory is at the foundation of our philosophical system, but it might not be that when you make laws and policies, you should be thinking about utilitarian cost-benefit analysis or uh, what rights everyone has alone. It, it might be as far removed from those foundational theories as crossing the street is from thinking about 11 or 13 dimensional strings. So that can be a useful reminder for me as a philosopher that, that my, my theories and, and my thinking is important as part of the puzzle, but uh, it, it is only part of the puzzle and it needs to be filtered through a lot of other stuff before we know what to do in everyday life. And so when we get back, we're going to dive right into the abstract. We're going to talk about your book, Saving Animals, Saving Ourselves. But before that, we're taking a break. I'm Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We're talking with Jeff Sebo about non-human rights. We'll be back right after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking with Jeff Sebo about non-human rights. I was thinking just uh, during the break about a bikepacking trip that I took last summer. Bikepacking is a lot like hiking, but you're on a bicycle and all of your equipment is attached to uh, the bicycle. It's it's a fairly masochistical way of, of spending your time, but it's one of my favorite ways of being in nature. And on this trip... I was in the Iron Range in northern Minnesota, and I had been on the bike for about four minutes, and a black bear crosses my path. And I stop, and I stare at the bear, and the bear stares at me, and then the bear walks into the woods on the other side of the path, and I spent the entire next 15 minutes biking, singing at the top of my lungs, hi, bear, I'm here, I'm here, bear, hi, bear, I'm here. But I was not attacked, I was not eaten, and I did not bother the bear, other than he had to put up with my singing. But other than that, that was without question the highlight of the trip. Seeing a bear that close, getting to interact with that kind of nature that was both threatening and beautiful at the same time was one of the great experiences of, I, I, don't, want, I don't know if I want to say my life, but pretty close. And I don't think that that kind of interaction is possible when you see bears in mountain towns that are knocking down 
garbage cans or things like that, that you have to be in nature. You have to be in a place where the bear is respected and the bear is in the environment. And so I guess the question, Jeff, I want to ask you is, in a situation like that, do you envision the model as me encroaching on the bear's environment? Or do you envision the model as the bear and I figuring out some way to live together to each other's benefit? Yeah. Well, I love that story and I uh, love that question too. It, it reminds me as a brief aside of, of this famous event where uh, in the 1980s, the philosopher Val Plumwood was attacked by a, a crocodile and she lived and fortunately and, and then was able to write some philosophy about it and reflected on her own mortality and on our place and <laughs> this ecosystem and this food chain and asked the same kinds of questions that you are. Fortunately, you were uh, able to ask those questions without having been attacked by a bear. <laughs> but and I have to tell so you that the time. crocodiles are among my greatest fear in the world. <laughs> and so the <laughs> fact that now I know they want to eat philosophers, that's going to keep me up at night. I just, I just want you to know that. So I blame you. But please go on. <laughs> well, well, I will take credit for for giving you the heads up. Then, uh, in in any case, yeah, I I think I think thinking about it in both of those ways at the same time is good, right? We we understand implicitly that when it comes to getting along with living and letting live with other humans, that the project is fundamentally to figure out how to create a shared environment where we can all have lives that are meaningful to us. But then we also recognize that perhaps, unless you are an anarchist of various kinds, uh, part of that is then dividing up property, dividing up the world in such a way that we can all have our little piece of it, right? And we can uh, live and let live. We can share these environments, but then we can all maintain control of our own little territories uh, within that broader structure. And so I think part of what we need to do with other animals is start to extend those ways of thinking, or at least ask ourselves what it would look like to extend those ways of thinking to them, where the main project is once again, to broadly speaking, get along, broadly speaking, live and let live. Uh, and then the sort of more specific project within that is to think about how can we share the world uh, specifically in practice? What would it look like for us to recognize property rights, not only for humans, but also broadly for non-human animals too, uh, to recognize their, their right to control their territory, their habitats, uh, or, or sharing rights to uh, control shared habitats. So, so there are these general projects of getting along and then these specific, really difficult questions of, of how to uh, make that possible institutionally, given that we all have lots of need and, and share scarce resources. To take a step back to give a, a global sense of what you're talking about, in your book, you use a word that I had not been familiar with, but it's really foundational, and it's the Anthropocene. I'm assuming that I'm pronouncing that right. What is the Anthropocene, and why is it so important? The Anthropocene is understood to be a new geological epoch. By new, I mean, you know, within the past several centuries a new geological epoch defined primarily by the impacts of human activity on the planet. So we are now living in a geological epoch where human activity is for better or for worse, primarily or exclusively responsible for what happens in the world. And that means that there is no longer any kind of clean, simple division between captive and domesticated animals on one hand 
and free and wild animals on the other hand, because there is no longer a category of animals that exists fully free and independently of human activity. We are to, to greater and lesser degrees now influencing the evolution of and controlling the lives of every animal who exists, or at least very, very many of the animals who exist, as well as the natural systems in which they exist. And that just has profound implications, not only for the way the world is going to develop from here, but also for the kinds of responsibilities that we plausibly have to take care of all of the animals who are now going to be affected by our activity, whether we like it or not. So there's the Jurassic period, for example, there's the Pliocene, there's the Mesozoic, and so now we're in the Anthropocene. Is this a term that is generally accepted amongst geologists, or is this a term that has been created in order to emphasize the relationship between human beings and animals? Yes, this term is uh, generally accepted by people across uh, the sciences, including, I believe, in geology. But like every academic idea, this idea is also contested. I think everybody agrees that human activity is an increasingly dominant influence on the planet. But there are disagreements. For example, some people think that we have more control and more power than we do. Other people think that, yeah, we have a lot, but not quite as much as those other people think. Uh, and then there are also debates about what the best framing is. For example, some people prefer, instead of calling it the Anthropocene, they prefer calling it the Capitalocene because they think that the, the real driver of all of these global changes is not human activity in general, but rather a particular kind of human economic activity known as capitalism in particular, right? And so they see that as a better, more useful frame for understanding our influence on the planet. So there are debates about the extent of it and about the best framings for it, but I think people generally increasingly agree that our activities are uh, increasingly dominant and increasingly influential on the planet, yes. And what does that term give your book philosophically that you use it in such a foundational way? What, 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 what purpose, what, what philosophical move does it make? So I care a lot about all animals and the, the plights of all animals. And that includes not only captive and domesticated animals, but also free and wild animals. And if you look at philosophical debates, moral, legal, political debates about what, if anything, humans owe other animals, you sometimes see a division where some people think we have responsibilities to all sentient beings, including domesticated animals and wild animals. But other people think we have responsibilities to domesticated animals, but not to wild animals, because we are in various ways responsible for or complicit in the plight of domesticated animals. We shaped their evolution. We have used them in various ways. And that creates a kind of relational responsibility to take care of them because we, we are at least partly responsible for their uh, predicament. But with wild animals, we have nothing to do with the suffering and death that they endure because of hunger and thirst and illness and injury and predation and parasitism. So we might not owe them the same type of care. And if anything, we might owe them the reverse. We might owe them leaving them alone and not getting involved in their affairs. So that is a distinction that people sometimes make. But my point is that the Anthropocene changes all of that. Because in the Anthropocene, human activity is now either directly or indirectly responsible for, or at least complicit in, the plight, the predicament of all animals. We might be a little bit more directly and intentionally, 
responsible for the predicament of domesticated animals, but we are still at least indirectly and foreseeably now responsible for the predicaments of wild animals. When deforestation destroys their habitats, when ocean acidification destroys their habitats, or when the indirect effects of these activities, uh, the increased frequency and intensity of extreme weather events like fires or floods uh, and migration and, and so on and so forth, when that affects their lives, we need to keep in mind that our activity is part of what made those things happen. And so we should regard ourselves as having the same type of responsibility, at least to a degree, for the lives of wild animals that we all recognize we have for the lives of domesticated animals. So in your book, in order to illustrate this, you have a paradigmatic example. And that example is a fawn falling into a swimming pool. Could you tell us the problem and how you use it as a moral exemplar to pull the thread of the rest of the argument? Yeah, absolutely. And and I should say that this is uh, adapted from a famous uh, thought experiment from Peter Singer and his argument, uh, his article, Famine, Affluence, and Morality, back from the 70s. And in my version of the thought experiment, you have a house and a backyard and have decided to build a swimming pool in your backyard. And so you built the pool and you put the water in the pool and are in the process of building a fence around the pool, but the fence is not yet complete. And you wake up one morning and are getting ready for work, putting on your suit and and getting ready for the day. And you look outside, drinking your coffee, and you see that a fawn, a baby deer, has uh, walked through the incomplete fence and fallen into your swimming pool and is now drowning in your swimming pool. And her family is sitting there watching her drown helplessly. And, you know, you knew that this family was there. You see them out your window, and that was part of why you were building the fence, but you were taking your time doing it. And, and so you are watching this unfold, and you realize that you need to make a decision. You can either wade into the swimming pool and rescue the fawn, uh, push her to safety and let her and her family continue uh, along on their day, or you can let her drown, not worry about it, and go on to work. And, you know, if you save her, you are not at risk. You can definitely safely uh, get her to, to safety, but you might ruin your suit. You might be a little late for an important meeting. You might be a little frazzled going into your day. And the question is, do you have a responsibility, a moral responsibility under these circumstances to save the fawn? And my point in this thought experiment is that we all agree, or at least very many of us agree, that in this kind of situation, yes, you do have a moral responsibility to save the fawn. People like utilitarians who think we should do the most good possible no matter what, they will say that you should save the fawn simply because the fawn is suffering and dying and that is bad and you have the power to do something about it without sacrificing uh, anything very significant. And then rights theorists or relational theorists would say, well, you might not ordinarily have a responsibility to go around saving drowning animals, but in this case, you are complicit in what is happening to her. You built this pool and took your time building the fence with the foreseeable result that something like this might happen. And so when it is happening, you have a responsibility to help her, not just to make the world a better place, but specifically to reduce and repair the harms that your activity has caused. And so we can all agree, even if for different reasons, that you should save this farm. And then my point, and, and I was suggesting this a moment ago when I was talking about the Anthropocene, is that in the Anthropocene, in a world reshaped by human activity, we are increasingly 
turning the whole world into our backyard and building a series of swimming pools and leaving holes in the fences. We are turning the entire world into hazardous uh, environments for non-human animals. And that gives us a responsibility to take care of them as best we can in whatever ways might be ethical and effective and sustainable for us, either because that will reduce their suffering, which is good in its own right, or at least in the spirit of reducing and repairing the harms that our own activity has caused for them. And then there's a follow-up variation on that in which the fawn falls into a lake, right? What's the difference between those two and why do we have to have uh, attention to both? So the, a case where a fawn falls into the lake does put pressure on what kind of moral theory we accept, right? Because when the fawn falls into your swimming pool, we can all agree that you have a responsibility to save that fawn for the reasons I mentioned a moment ago, right? The utilitarians will say that you should do it because it reduces suffering in the world. And then other moral theorists will say that you should do it because you are complicit in the suffering. And so you should reduce and repair the harms that you caused. Now, when you are just taking a hike through the woods and you see a fawn drowning in a lake, then the utilitarians might still think that you should save her because it remains true that the fawn is suffering and dying and you have the power to do something about it without sacrificing anything particularly significant. But the rights theorists and the relational theorists, they might or might not think that you should do it because they think there can be limits on our responsibility to go around reducing suffering and improving the state of the world. So there will be some cases where a lot does still depend on which moral theory we accept. But but one of the points that I try to make in the book is, in the Anthropocene, it will never be fully clear to us which forms of non-human suffering are at least partly a result of human activity. Moving forward, whenever we see, for example, wild animals drowning in ponds or uh, more realistically, suffering and dying because of hunger, because of thirst, because of illness, because of injury, because of even predation and parasitism, we have to appreciate that they, they might have been driven to that point in part because of the pressures placed upon them by the effects of human activity on the planet. And so, so we are not any longer fully going to be able to tell whether a particular instance of non-human suffering is partly a result of human activity. And for that reason, we might need to err on the side of caution and assume at least some weak responsibility for everything that happens to non-human animals. Again, working within our limitations and our powers, but we might find that our responsibilities are actually pretty expansive because we have up until this point just fundamentally changed the planet and everyone in it. It, it reminds me kind of like uh, raising a child. Long-term listeners know I have a daughter, Adina. She's uh, graduating high school this uh, weekend, actually. And um, and I, she's my favorite human being in the world. And my wife and I, we all, always joke that we can take about 30% of credit for her, that the rest is her, <laughs> but 30% is us. But we don't know which 30%, right? We don't know which mm -hmm. aspect of what things she did came from us and what came come from her and what she developed from a foundation. And, and that's what it sounds like the Anthropocene problem is, is that, yes, there are parts of the world where maybe human beings haven't tread, but that doesn't change the effect of climate change. And it doesn't change the the consequence of, of airplane flights over... Uh, 
various different things or, or all sorts of stuff I don't understand that that I think your point seems to be that the system is so complicated that there's no way to pinpoint those things which are purely wild and those things which are human. And so we have a moral obligation to just assume participation in every single event on some level. Am I understanding you correctly? Mm-hmm. That is exactly, exactly right. For example, we know that climate change is going to increase the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events like fires and floods. So when we see more fires and floods over the next century, we can know, we can be very confident that human activity is responsible for at least some proportion of that. But we might not be able to tell with respect to any particular fire or flood whether that one would have happened either way or would have been this bad either way. So we can know in general that we can be responsible for the trend, but we might not be able to tell in particular instances what degree of responsibility we have. So as you say, we might need to just assume at least some share of responsibility in all of the stuff moving forward. And also, uh, congratulations on your daughter's graduation. <laughs> uh, thank you. And, and it occurs to me that by the time this airs, it will have been last week. So so I'm hoping I'm not jinxing anything. But y- your book, uh, Saving Animals, Saving Ourselves, is really fun because I'm not sure how else to describe it, but it's the kind of book that people think a, a philosophy book uh, reads like if they've never read philosophy. <laughs> and what I mean by that is professional philosophers will write these books with, you know, 75 footnotes on every page and we're quoting texts and this, that, and the other thing. And you're just laying out an argument. I mean, you, you, you have citations, but you're just laying out an argument. You're saying, here's what, here's an assumption. Here's this, but what if this, okay, this, what if that, okay, that, okay, now here's this, what if this, what if that, okay, this, that, that. and it's just a, it's just a, <laughs> a, a linear, straightforward argument that is exactly what people imagine philosophers do all of the time. It's like people think mathematicians sit at their desk and count. <laughs> you know, we, um, <laughs> we, we just do these arguments. And I, I recommend it for many reasons, but, but, but for that as a whole. And so let me outline for the listeners just a basic point, because it's going to uh, explain a couple of the terms you used, and then you can take it from here. Um, Mm -hmm. What you argue is that philosophers historically have relied on ethical theories to come to various conclusions. The two dominant ones are utilitarianism and rights theory. Utilitarianism is the idea, as you mentioned earlier, that we have an obligation to pursue the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. And that makes people impartial. So my happiness is equal to your happiness is equal to some stranger's happiness. And so one of the questions, and this Peter Singer is very famous for dealing with this, is the fawn's happiness equivalent to my happiness? or not. And so there's a question there. We also don't know what the consequences might be. And there's a lot of math, right? But the basic idea is we have a moral obligation to promote the greatest happiness for the greatest good. And so if a person has a right to something, it just means that the consequences are the best if we if 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 we do that thing rights theorists mm-hmm. are doing something different rights theorists are saying that there are these things there maybe they're natural laws maybe they're social agreements but there are these parts of activity that we're not allowed to interfere with, that we're not allowed to step on. And so most famously, uh, you're not allowed to kill anybody unless it's in self-defense because 
taking someone's life is is unjustifiable. They have a right to live. And what you do in the book, which is super interesting, is you say there are going to be nuances that are different, whether you're a utilitarian or a rights theorist. But in the end, they're going to converge on the basic conclusion. And the basic conclusion is that we have these moral responsibilities. Is that mm -hmm. a fair assumption of the foundational first part of the book? Yes, absolutely. And, and it really relates to what I was saying earlier. I think because philosophers often work in our philosophy silo, we can be stuck thinking about these issues in these simplistic and reductive and abstract ways without really appreciating what happens when we connect our discipline up with all of the other disciplines in the humanities and social sciences and natural sciences and advocacy and policy and so on. But these really are foundational theories about what we should believe and what we should value and what we should do. And it takes a lot of work to figure out uh, what their implications are for particular people in particular situations. And my point is when we take those extra steps to take these abstract philosophical theories and figure out what they imply we should do in particular situations, they really do start to converge and, and we should spend less time arguing and hating each other over which theory is right and more time really building coalitions around these pluralistic frameworks that all of the theories end up endorsing in practice. Utilitarians and rights theorists should both agree in practice that we have a responsibility to reduce the harms that we cause to other animals, increase the supports that we offer to other animals in ways that are ethical and effective and achievable and sustainable for humanity. Uh, and that part of what we need to do in order to do that work ethically and effectively is build and maintain these systems of rights for human and non-human animals and these systems of justice for human and non-human animals. I think all roads lead to this kind of pluralistic framework. Do more good in the world, but also respect rights, cultivate virtuous states of character, build just and caring relationships with each other. We should be doing all of those things, no matter what our theoretical foundation is. And so then you use that, and this is, um, these, uh, I think, actually are your words, uh, that, that the book argues that, that uh, we should include animals in health and environmental advocacy and policy. What does that mean and what does it look like? What does it mean to include animals in health and environmental advocacy and policy? Yeah, that is a great question. So a big part of the book is not only an argument that animals matter for their own sakes and we need to extend moral and legal and political status to them, but is also an argument that human and non-human lives are linked and fates are linked in the Anthropocene because our use of other animals and our exploitation and extermination of other animals in industries like factory farming, like deforestation, like the wildlife trade are not only harming and killing trillions of non-human animals per year directly, but are also significantly contributing to global health and environmental threats like pandemics and climate change, which in turn are imperiling human and non-human lives at the same time. So when we harm and kill animals for food and for other purposes, we make uh, the spread of diseases in the world worse. We make climate change and resulting fires and floods worse. And then when those global health and environmental threats hit, when diseases spread, when fires occur, when floods occur, uh, the vulnerable populations are the ones that suffer the most. And that includes vulnerable human populations and then especially vulnerable non-human populations. When pandemics hit, 
animals suffer and die either because they catch a disease or because we see them as a source of a cure or because we see them as a vector for disease, so we kill them. When a fire or flood hits, uh, animals can suffer or die because they die in the fire or flood. Or again, we might see them as a source of income in trying times, or we might see them as an invasive species when they try to escape the fire or flood and enter a human community to, to find a new place to live. And so if we want to uh, mitigate and adapt to these human-caused global health and environmental threats, again, ethically, effectively, sustainably, then we need to do that work holistically, we need to do it comprehensively, and we need to do it in a way that includes all of the stakeholders, right? We need to reduce our use of animals, both to mitigate pandemics and climate change and for their own sakes, and then we need to increase our support for animals, both as we adapt to pandemics and climate change, and again, for their own sakes. We need to do it for them, but we need to do it also because this is important for humans too. So I, I can think of two ways that somebody who's going to be super skeptical is going to react to this book. And, and, and these are not mine, but I think that these are caricatures that people would use to dismiss it. The first is, mm -hmm. well, if your goal is to help every animal, you're not helping anybody because you have to pick and choose. And second, yeah, 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 we should all be vegans. Let's move on. <laughs> um, obviously, those are not fair uh, accounts of what you're arguing. Why not? Well, I think that this is another place where theory and practice can be in tension with each other, because I think theoretically, we should recognize that we do now have vast responsibilities. Uh, it is true that the world contains trillions, if not quadrillions, if not quintillions of sentient or at least potentially sentient individuals who have lives that matter to them and whose interests we should consider when deciding how to treat them. But of course, these are quintillions of individual members of millions of species, and they have all kinds of different interests and needs. And here we are with our scarce resources and our selfish motivations, and we can barely take care of members of our own species to say nothing of other mammals, to say nothing of other vertebrates, to say nothing of all of the invertebrates, right? So on one hand, our responsibilities are now vast and these issues are very important. But on the other hand, uh, we have all kinds of limitations on what we can actually do. We know very little about which non-human animals are sentient and what they want and need and what we can do in order to make their lives better. Even when we do have that information, we have very little power, capacity, infrastructure for acting on that information. And even when we have both the uh, knowledge and the power, we have limited political will. <laughs> Right. And so I think a really, really important starting point when taking these issues seriously is to recognize both our responsibilities and our limitations in equal measure. It can be really tempting to see how vast our responsibilities are and then be dismissive of our limitations. We want to think if we should do something, then somehow we can. But then on the other side of that, it can be really tempting to see how uh, limited we are, right? How little we know, how little power we have, how little motivation we have, and then dismiss the idea that we have these vast responsibilities. We want to think if we can only do so much, then we should only do so much. So I think a really important starting point is just recognizing that we really ought to do a lot, are currently limited in what we can do well. And so our starting project should be to take on tasks, to pursue interventions that can do at least some good for some animals in the short term while building that knowledge, that 
power, that political will, building momentum so that we can empower our future selves and our successors to be able to go a little bit farther than we can right now. And then one day at some point, we can figure out what our actual limits are once we have spent a little bit of time investing in this project. How do you balance or rather, who who is the onus on? Is this an individual mandate or is this a collective mandate? How, how, how does Jack fit into the public policy debate? That is another great question. And uh, I think once again, that the answer is both and. It, it can, in the same kind of way that uh, it can be common for us to frame utilitarianism versus right theory in these binary, mutually exclusive terms and then spend all of our time debating it. It can also be tempting to frame all of these theory of change questions in binary, mutually exclusive terms. Should we be pursuing individual change or collective structural change? Should we be pursuing abolition of harmful industries or regulation of harmful industries? Should we be taking confrontational approaches or should we be taking conciliatory approaches? And I think in all of these cases, the answer is almost always both and, and the question is, uh, what is best for a particular actor with a particular audience in a particular context? What kind of ratio between these approaches is best? Because for example, in the case of individual change versus collective or structural change, you of course do need enough individuals to change their hearts and minds in order to cause collectives to change their practices and structures to change, right? You need enough individuals to be willing to go vegan, to boycott factory farming, industrial animal agriculture, in order for the political and economic powers that be to decide that there is enough public support for changing laws and policies and changing business practices to make vegan uh, plant-based food products more accessible, affordable, and desirable. But then on the flip side, you need to pursue those structural changes. You need to change policies. You need to change business practices to make these products more accessible, affordable, desirable in order to persuade more individuals to purchase them, right? And so the more we uh, pursue changes in our individual lives and encourage others to do the same, the more we can build pressure and momentum behind those kinds of broader collective structural changes. And then the more we can incrementally create those kinds of collective and structural changes, the more we can persuade individuals and the easier we can make it for individuals to then make those changes and build further momentum. So these things are all important and all mutually reinforcing. What for you has been the hardest part of the argument to deal with? The The, the book is structured. You, you offer the the overview and then the argument, and then you offer, you know, the, the philosophers, here are the objections, here are my response to the objections. What for you was the, was the thing that tugged at your heart with the most frustration? Was there a part of, <laughs> of, 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 of the argument that really was, was, was the Gordian knot for you? Mm. Yeah, that is another really good question. I guess I would say that the hardest part for me is recognizing how slow this process is really going to be and how much we still have to learn. I wish that I knew exactly what the roadmap should be, but the reality is that there are still fundamental questions that we need to answer where the answers are going to inform a lot and where we are just not in the position to answer these questions in a responsible way yet. And, and I can give you a couple of examples of this. One is, Please. again, this question that I mentioned earlier, 
which animals are sentient or otherwise morally significant in the first place and how much happiness and suffering or other significant kinds of states can they experience and, and what do they want and need? Uh, for, for example, are insects capable of experiencing pleasure, pain, happiness, and suffering, satisfaction, and frustration? Because if so, that changes a lot. There are quintillions of insects alive at any given time. Humans are currently farming more than a trillion insects per year, up to possibly 50 trillion per year by the end of this decade as a, a seemingly sustainable solution to our food crisis. And climate change is, is going to very significantly impact insect populations, causing some to contract, but possibly others to expand. So if insects matter, then given that there are so many of them, their welfare could really add up in the aggregate and they could be a truly non-negligible factor in our decisions about what would be best for everybody overall. And another example concerns population ethics. Uh, one of the main impacts of our activities is not what happens to the beings who are currently alive, but all of the beings who are going to come into existence or not come into existence because of the effects of our activity, climate change is going to alter what kinds of animals can live on the planet in the future. Some species will contract or die. Other species will expand or come into existence to take their place. And so we have to take seriously not only how are our actions affecting the animals who are alive here and now, but also what kinds of populations are our activities bringing into existence and how can we morally evaluate those impacts of our actions. And once again, in the same way that a lot might depend on whether insects count, a lot is going to depend on how we answer those extremely complicated scientific and philosophical questions about our impacts on future generations. And so I just want to note that that was both the most frustrating, but also the most exciting part of this project is just really taking seriously how those variables should shape our approaches to policy decisions today. I'll, I'm going to conclude with a, a version of a question that I've asked a lot of guests who are who are struggling with moral problems, which is, is it possible to stay optimistic in the face of your research? Do, how does the non-human rights project fit into that since their progress has been very, very, very slow and they have not been able to find a judge who is going to declare any chimpanzee uh, or other animal uh, a person at this point? Can you be independent of the, the 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 fun of philosophical puzzles? Can you be optimistic in the face of of this glacial pace, or uh, does it get you down? Yes, I I think that we absolutely can be optimistic, and that that is a really important part of staying motivated to do what we need to do to bring about those changes. Right, uh, but but our optimism should be tempered and realistic. I, I think it can be tempting to be either very optimistic or very pessimistic because both of those attitudes can be rationalizations for inaction, right? If you have a lot of optimism, then you might think, I don't need to do much because everything will work itself out. And if you have a lot of pessimism, you can think, I don't need to do much because everything is going to hell no matter how hard I try, right? Uh, the, the most accurate attitude and the most helpful attitude is having a kind of cautious optimism, realizing that positive change is possible, but it will take a long time and it requires a lot of hard work and a lot of luck because that is both true to reality and what will motivate us to really get up every day and do everything we can with the resources that we have to make a positive difference, right? Uh, and, and then the other thing I try to keep in mind is just that this will take a long time and we really need to think about the effects that we have on the world 
in generational terms, right? Humanity is still broadly speaking in its adolescence when it comes to these issues. We are very much kind of teenagers right now in our education and development phase. And so one of the best and most important things that we can do is just really invest in our education and development and moral character building and try to build the, the kind of momentum in the right direction that can set our successors up to just make a little bit more progress. And then they can set their successors up to make a little bit more progress. It really is going to take uh, intergenerational collaboration. And so we might not see payoff right now in our own lifetimes, but we can set humanity on a path where we can build momentum towards the kinds of payoffs that we need later on. And, and that can be a little frustrating to know that you might not directly experience the ultimate uh, benefits of, of your actions, but, but it can be a reminder that like, it is okay, we can pace ourselves, we can be uh, ambitious but realistic at the same time. Well, that is an overlap of both cautious optimism and strate- uh, uh, <laughs> I was going to say strategery of <laughs> strategy yeah. that um that 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 is a great place for us to end. Is there anything else, any other element of the discussion of the message that you want to communicate to the audience that you think is needs to be emphasized in a way that we haven't talked about already? Not uh, specifically. I will just say that in general, because this is on my mind uh, this week, that that one of the main messages of the book and, and of my work in general is that a lot of things are important at the same time, and a lot of issues demand our attention at the same time. And so just as much as possible, we should avoid falling into those binary mutually exclusive ways of thinking. You know, if if climate change is important and demands our attention, that must mean that uh, AI safety is not important and does not demand our attention, right? Or if humans are important and demand our attention, that must mean non-humans are not important and do not demand our attention. And really in all of these cases, there are just a lot of important individuals in the world and a lot of important issues those individuals are facing. And we need to figure out ways to take them all seriously at the same time rather than pitting them against each other because we happen to have one that we want to work on in particular. So that would be the main message, the main theme that I really highlight is just we should embrace as much as possible these both and uh, ways of thinking instead of these either or ways of thinking. I think that's incredibly helpful and really useful and powerful for all of us to remember. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on Why. Yeah, thank you so much. This is a great conversation. I really appreciate it. You have been listening to Jeff Sebo and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'll be back with a few more thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm Jack Russell Weinstein. We were talking with Jeff Sebo about non-human rights and about the way that the animals and humans exist together in the Anthropocene, in the geological global epoch that we live in right now. And at the very end, he said two things that I think 
are worth re-attending uh, to. The first is that a lot of this is going to involve moral character building. What does it mean to be an ethical person and where does that come from? In our culture, we tend to think about it in terms of what the parents provide. And then there's the debate about how much character education should happen in school. But really, the question is, how do we create a culture that supports the ability to create the immoral imagination? How do we create a culture in which we are constantly learning to have empathy for other people and other non-people? As we started talking about in the very beginning, we have a hard time imagining the global issues and the non-human perspective that limits us in the attention that we give these issues. And we have to stop that. We have to increase our ability to imagine so that we can increase our moral character. We have to build our moral selves. And the more we build our moral selves, the more space we'll have to consider non-human animals as well as human beings. The second thing he didn't say as explicitly, but it was implicit in his point, and it's implicit in most ethical theories, and that is we have to do the best we can. We're not going to fix the whole system. We're not going to know all the things we need to know. We're not going to have the political power or even the technological abilities to solve every single problem. What we can do is the best we can, not get overwhelmed by all of the needs and focus on a handful of things that we can affect. And it's not just one thing. Focusing on climate change is focusing on non-human animals. Focusing on the food supply is focusing on personal health. Focusing on education is focusing on the future generation's well-being. We have to do the best we can. And if we are doing that, then in the long run, we can be cautiously optimistic that the world is going to be a better place for us and for all the sentient beings that we share the world with. With all of that said, if you've been listening to this episode on Sunday evening on Prairie Public, please know that a longer version with almost 30 more minutes of discussion is available online and as a podcast. Visit yradioshow.org to listen or subscribe for free. For everyone else, rate us on iTunes and Spotify to help spread the word about the show. Follow us on all the usual social networks. Our handle is always at yradioshow, W-H-Y radio show. And please help us continue broadcasting by making your tax-deductible donation at yradioshow.org. Click Donate in the upper right-hand corner to go to UND Alumni's Donation Portal. We exist solely on the money you provide. I'm Jack Russell Weinstein signing off for Y Radio. Thanks for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you. Y is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. 